Welcome to Solidity Galaxy Brain. My guest today is Ben Heidorn, better known as Cybourgeoisie on Twitter. Ben is a Solidity developer who's been building crypto puzzles and games for several years. He's the CTO at crypto game studio Blockade Games, developers of Neon District, and principal developer on Josie Bellini's Cyber Brokers, a massively on-chain SVG NFT collection that's been in the works for over two years. In this episode, Ben and I chat about many of the projects he's worked on over the years, including Torched Hearts, Plasma Bears, Tokens of Infection, Fate, The Ledger of Zabo, and more. If you're excited to hear the details on how Ben stored more than 1,400 SVG layers in over 2,000 contracts on Ethereum L1 for Cyber Brokers, make sure to stick around for the last third of this episode. It was a pleasure chatting with Ben about the early days of puzzling and cross-chain experimentation and his more recent experience building sophisticated on-chain NFT projects. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, so thank you for coming on the show. Do you go by Ben, uh, Ben Heidorn, or uh, Cybourgeoisie? What's your preference? Ben is fine. I never ask anybody to pronounce my name in, in person unless I don't like them. <laughs> so uh, we talked a little bit before the the show, but first question I want to ask you is what were you doing right before you started in crypto? Uh, before I started in crypto, I've been a traditional, you know, Web2 software engineer um, in the years leading up to starting Blockade Games with uh, Marguerite and Diego. In 2018, I was a grad student. So I was um, doing computer science at Penn State University, had made it through all of my classes, uh, was just in the research phase of things. Uh, I focused heavily on uh, security, uh, notably like in the Linux kernel and ways to, um, we, we explored something called the Intel processor trace as a way to identify when somebody was trying to circumvent the natural flow of a program and actually try to um, like inject their own code and get administrative privileges. So that was kind of what I was doing before all of this. I fell into everything through puzzles and all the, the, the niche aspects of crypto that, that don't really exist anymore. Uh, but we're a really big part of bringing crypto to the, the the mainstream back in 2016, 2017. What do you mean by don't exist anymore? Well, the the puzzles still exist for sure, um, but they've they've morphed a bit from what they used to be. It was kind of a, a way of onboarding people into crypto as opposed to engaging an already existing user base. So. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, CoinArtist is credited as being the inventor of crypto puzzles. Um, basically, the notion of taking uh, a painting, a piece of art, and within it encoding a private key. And she worked a lot with Rhea Myers, um, who I had the extreme fortune to work with myself. And they did a lot of puzzles over the years where Rhea and her would come up with a design for, you know, how can we encode a private key in this way? Uh, or create uh, like an ARG type experience for people uh, to basically walk through and uncover uh, hidden answers and basically find their way to a prize, uh, which would typically be, you know, some Bitcoin or in later years, Ethereum and NFTs. Rhea famously is like one of the uh, most well-known and earliest uh, name coin. And was it Doge? What was it called? Do uh, the counterparty, but on Dogecoin or something like this. Anyway, my soul project, like uh, a real classic, uh, one of the earliest crypto artists, to my knowledge, at least. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, these are people who um, like broke the ground for everybody, uh, made a lot of this possible. If it, if it wasn't for them, I don't think that, I mean, I don't know for certain, but I really fell into the space when Zidan, um, he was an earlier uh, crypto artist and, and more, more so puzzle designer. He did a puzzle for Charlie Lee, the creator of Litecoin. Uh, and he worked with uh, Marguerite a bit on this as well. Or she was involved. And the puzzle was, that it was what caught my attention, that there was even a, such a thing as crypto puzzles, because I was following Charlie Lee, and I was, you know, on the surface level, um, like trading shit coins, and, you know, like how, how everyone starts in the space, sure, right? Sure. You, you find <laughs> odds and ends, and you don't really know what's there until um, it, it surprises you. So we, I, I just finished up um, another semester, uh, so I had quite a bit of free time. My wife was teaching. Uh, she was a high school teacher for quite some time, and she was teaching away from our hometown. So I had a lot of free time on my hands, um, discovered the puzzle, and basically lost two entire weeks uh, working on it, on the Litecoin Segwit puzzle. And that turned out to be extremely fortuitous. Um, I was lucky enough to be on the team, solved it. And from there, I heard about uh, Marguerite's other puzzles, notably the one known as One Flame and Six, or Torched Hearts, uh, was the infamous puzzle that had five Bitcoin in it by the time it was, when, when it was solved, it was about 50000 about $100,000. Um, so it's pretty pretty big. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was my real, that was when I was no longer a connoisseur of the space and actually fell in, uh, fell into the rabbit hole. Super interesting. Do you remember what the ZDEM puzzle was like? Yeah, it, it was, um, I, I remember it very well. <laughs> The, it was a circular puzzle with an, uh, the Litecoin L in the middle, and it was a graph, uh, basically, inside of the puzzle. And it was a directed um, acyclic graph, I believe, but it had arrows that would move and rotate around each node. So it would change the path that the graph would take. Um, so you basically, the, the encoding was extremely difficult to decipher. Uh, we kind of had to brute force our way to the end of that. And I'm not sure if there was a way to, to deduce it otherwise, because you had to try thousands of different combinations to figure out a path that would actually lead you to the end. And even then, there were still a lot of valid final answers. There wasn't just one valid final answer, so you had to actually check every single one of them to find the right private key. There was a circle of 256 dots um, that all had a different color. Uh, now, this is a grayscale image, so when I say color, I mean it was a different variant mm. of gray from dark to light. So 256 bits... You had to start at the top and you work your way through, I believe, clockwise. And then um, there were two rows, so you moved down to the second row and, and finished going through them. And that was those were the bits that were encrypted. And in order to decrypt it and figure out what the private key was, you had to walk through the graph. And as you're walking through the graph, you're also turning the arrows in the, in the process of doing so. So the fun thing about that is you could actually solve that puzzle in two ways. You could solve it moving from the, the front end and basically encoding the private key and deducing it that way. Or you could work from the very back and, and try to work, walk the entire graph backwards. And the, the way that we actually wound up solving it, because when you're walking through the graph, you tend to get a lot of possible solutions very, very quickly. Uh, because there's a lot of different alternatives at each uh, step of the graph that could work before you hit a dead end. So you wind up getting an extremely large number of possible paths that you can take. 
Um, in order to solve it, what I wound up doing was writing code that would solve it in both directions, so two separate pieces of code. And then from that, because I, I could not walk it all the way through in either piece of code, I wound up taking all of the, the example bits that it would come out with, and I compared the two. And if a, a pattern of bits was found to be in both directions, then we would only look at those patterns. So we wound up trimming uh, the problem set down quite a bit and then uh, ran through and actually tested all the private keys until we finally found uh, the correct one. Crazy. So so this whole puzzling scene is like a, it's interesting that you said it was a way for people who maybe weren't as interested in crypto or hadn't fully fallen into the rabbit hole to start to get interested by the kind of challenge <laughs> of solving the puzzles. I, I know you worked at a lot of hackathons. Uh, is that where like the community got together most or, or were there Discord telegrams at the time? How did it work? Um, it was very decentralized. I don't think many people were going to, to conferences um, that much back then. Now, granted, I had just gotten into the space. I know that there were conferences, people were doing that sort of thing, but everybody who I've met and everyone who I know who has been deeply into the puzzle scene, most of us haven't even met in real life. And it's been over four years now. <laughs> well. um, but yeah, but there's people all around the world. As Marguerite likes to say, it is a great recruiting tool. Um, because the people who solve these puzzles or even the ones who attempt it or the ones who build them, they're, they tend to be very, very good um, at either mathematics or coding or, or deduction or game theory or just anything at all, because any number of skills can come into play. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that I've met over the years since 2017, we're all still friends and we all still work together on different projects. That's great. So you solved the, uh, it was it the Torched Hearts uh, project and then... I, oh, wish, <laughs> I wish I solved Torched Hearts. No, I solved the Litecoin Segwit puzzle. Torched Hearts is always like, I got so close to that, <laughs> it, it still hurts me to this day. But I, I actually stopped working on it because I started working on projects with Marguerite. Um, I thought it would look sure, bad sure, sure. if I was the one to solve it. So, what was the prize for it, that? That was five Bitcoin. Oh, oh, that was the five Bitcoin. Okay, that was the five Bitcoin puzzle. Um, the the Litecoin one was like two hundred and thirty or something Litecoin. It was a pretty big prize. Now, granted, Litecoin was like twenty five bucks at the time. <laughs> um, so, still pretty sizable for someone coming in from grad school with no money um, to to find your way into crypto that way. But we had a team of six people. It was myself and two others who were really contributing to it. So we split up the prize among like six of us. And then um, we also d gave a donation to the Litecoin Foundation. Oh, that's nice. Uh, so, so you pretty quickly started working on projects and uh, uh, with Marguerite. Was that in Solidity or what language or what chain did you initially start programming for? We, we started with Ethereum. Uh, so when CryptoKitties came out, that was kind of a light bulb moment. Because, uh, you know, Marguerite's been building these games for a really long time. So um, when I say games, I, I, I mean, like, literally any experience, like an ARG-type experience someone can, can go through. And a big part of the cool things that she really wanted to do was to build, like, persistent game characters and persistent experiences rather than having an ephemeral one that, you know, comes and goes. Because um, you're, you're, you're rebuilding from scratch your community, your experience every single time. And with CryptoKitties, um, that was the light bulb moment that you could actually build a video game using cryptocurrency. Uh, she and our other co-founder, Diego Rodriguez, who is our lead artist and one of the, a great friend in the space, the two of them started working on the concept art for, for Neon District, uh, which is a game we've been building in multiple iterations over the years, um, finally getting to a, a really good place with that. 
I, I read that the uh, the concept art for Neon District started in like uh, late 2017, something like that. It, yeah, it probably would have been like early 2018, late uh, 2018, because we we dropped the we dropped the we had a white paper back then because that's what, <laughs> I mean, granted, people still do that today, but like it, it was you know like a very traditional like this is a token project that we're dropping white paper and it was shared on Bitcoin Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just traditional stuff that you, you did back in those days. That's a little bit different from now. Definitely no, no time for white papers these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people still, still come up with that. They, they make a roadmap, they it's make true. promises, they do all that sort of thing. I will say any NFT project that is promising to make a game and has never done so before, uh, they're, they're in for a rude awakening or they just don't intend to actually follow mm-hmm, through. Mm-hmm. So you started right away on, on Neon District. That was the first thing or what would become it? Yep. Neon District was the very beginning. Um, so we started like, um, uh, Diego was doing a lot of the art because um, originally Neon District was going to be like a rock, paper, scissors game on Ethereum, basically. And we immediately came up to the question of, well, this is not going to scale, right? <laughs> People are not going to spend uh, money. And e- even then, when Ethereum was like $100, it was still, well, I guess Ethereum was probably more like 500 It took a while for the price crash um, from the 2017 boom. It was pretty obvious that those were not going to scale. People are not going to be paying a few dollars every time they wanted to do right. anything. So we were immediately from the start looking at ways to scale that out. Um, I can talk about that in a bit because that brings us to Plasma Bears and Loom Network and and, and stuff that came a year later. Yeah, so we have like a, a bunch of contracts that you've written that I'm aware of and I'm sure tons that I'm not even aware of. Uh, some of the names here, maybe people will be familiar. Neon District, of course, uh, Tokens of Infection, uh, Die Kitty Die, Ledger of Zabo, Plasma Bears... Uh, later on, we'll talk a little more about fate and cyber brokers. Maybe we'll get into some details, but yeah, I think it would be great if we could just go through sort of, uh, maybe in order, I, I think I have them in order here, uh, sort of what the context was for their creation and, uh, maybe what the high level like learning was from building those contracts. So, uh, do you think tokens of infection is a, is a good place to start? Uh, that came a little, I think that's September. Later, September oh, really? Okay. I, I had September, 2019 for mm-hmm. that. Yep. Okay. Yep. There was stuff before. There, there was. Um, so our, our very first contract, I did not write. Um, the very first contract for Neon District uh, was written by David Hoover of, um, I think it's Red Squirrel Technologies, uh, okay. I believe. And he was a, a big inspiration and his team as well. Uh, we worked with uh, several people who worked with him at the time, all fantastic engineers. And he wrote our original contract, which was a trophy contract. It, it, was, it was an NFT, but it was built off of the ERC-20 contract because the 721 standard was not finalized, I believe, at that time. Uh, so, you know, David took the, the safe mm-hmm. route, basically built on top of that. So that contract, and the reason I bring that up is that was a project with the Pineapple Fund uh, called the Pineapple Arcade. So that was actually the first project that we launched in, you know, three, day, three months after uh, starting our company. Uh, we immediately got pulled into that because the, the, the Torch Charts puzzle was solved. That got the attention of the Pineapple Fund and the Pineapple Fund worked with us to make the Pineapple Arcade. And that was our first official product. We launched the trophy contract. And it's fun to say that because we launched the trophy contract the same day that Axie Infinity launched um, their Axie contract. So nice little bit of history cool. there. Uh, from there, we worked with uh, David's team to build the Plasma Bears contract. Plasma Bears came into fruition later in the year, very, very end of 2018. Uh, we were going to do a holiday project, a holiday puzzle, basically, a, a fun little way to test certain assumptions that we had about scaling Neon District as we were building it out. And that grew into the full game, Plasma Bears, quite organically. 
that was the first contract that I'd uh, been involved in. I did not start writing it out. Uh, most of that contract was written by by Sarah and uh, Randall, who worked with Dave. But I think my part in that was mostly just tying up the loose ends uh, so we could deploy the contract. And then my first major contract would have been the transfer gateway that we had between the Loom network and the Ethereum mainnet that actually let people uh, transfer their tokens between the two. So f- from, a high, from a high level, how does Plasma Bears work? What is it for someone who's never seen it at all? Uh, Plasma Bears was a very uh, simple click-based collectible game. So we wanted to make a free-to-play game. And I, I don't know if it's the first free-to-play game on you know Ethereum or, or a sidechain. I think there were, you know, a few others at the time, but it was one where you could come in with with nothing and sign up with a username and a password and immediately start playing. So uh, we had a pretty nice user base at the time. Um, we were able to plug in the game into Facebook games, so you could actually log into Facebook and, and play Plasma Bears from there. So we had our relatives, you know, our friends and our family were playing the game, and they loved it. It, it was basically you collect bear parts and you you merge them together to make a bear, and the bears have different textures on them, and they um, when you combine them together, there's an emotion that comes to life. So they were animated, so they had like a happy emotion or a cheeky emotion or an angry emotion. It was it was a super cute game. What was the experience of playing the free-to-play game like? What, what kind of game was it visually or experientially? It, yeah, it, it was a very basic like web two experience. It was like a really simple version of like, I don't know, Neopets, Gaia Online. Okay. These are not things that I think people are familiar with. Maybe the audience who's listening to this podcast. Everyone knows Neopets, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think so, right? So it was, you know, it was very simple. It was, it was click-based. Uh, we had stories. It was also a, we did a project with Xcopy. Xcopy was one of the artists for Plasma Bears. And I think that's, um, that got some attention. So, so and Plasma Bears was on the, so it was using a side chain. Uh, the gameplay would happen somehow yes. on Loom. And that's the part that you kind of architected. Mm-hmm. One of the big things I was focused on was how do we scale this out? And we were doing side chains and layer two stuff as early as, I think we had a call with Loom Network March, 2018. Um, so they were looking for for partners and projects to come on board. And I think the major projects they had at the time, there, there were a few, but the ones that stand out are, are our project. We were, I think the first announced partner. And then um, at some point later, Axie Infinity moved over to, to Loom as well. And then in, in early 2020, Loom just sent me a DM on Telegram saying we're shutting down tomorrow. Oh, no. So that was, that was a little rough. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, fast forward two years, it, didn't, it did not age well. Oh, that's right. But that being said, it, it happens. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all about on-chain persistence. More to talk about that soon. Um, you know, honestly, I, I, just a quick sidebar. I, I never played with Loom. I'm like a latecomer to all of this. So Loom, not an EVM chain, something else. Uh, Loom was an EVM chain. Okay. They were like 98% compatible with EVM, but it was that like other 2% mm. that caused breaking changes everywhere. <laughs> so they, they had a few EVM calls that were just not supported. So like we couldn't use things out of the box. Like I know a lot of developers today are using Avalanche, Polygon, Near Protocol, and you, you can basically pull things out of the box and just start using those tools. You can deploy your contracts right away to those networks, and it's just a configuration file. It wasn't like that with Loom. 
for example, we wanted to use the Open Zeppelin, the upgradable mm -hmm. contracts. They have a, an entire suite of tools that you can use, or they did at the time, uh, to help you manage your upgradable contracts and be able to deploy the upgrades in a, in a more safe fashion. Uh, Rhea Myers had to effectively deconstruct all of their tooling and make the necessary modifications just so we could deploy an upgradable contract on Loom Network. It was an extremely large project, and it was, you know, in hindsight, extremely unnecessary. <laughs> um, things we did not know at the time. I suppose it was the, it was the cheap uh, EVM chain at the time, the seemingly good choice. It was completely free. I mean, they talked about like uh, having a social credit for for people's accounts so that they weren't spamming the network, but we never even, the usage never got so high that there was spam on the network. So, uh, you know, it, it scaled just fine um, at the time. <laughs> so not like that today. But yes, we made, uh, the game was on Loom, uh, Plasma Bears was on Loom, Neon District eventually went to Loom as well. Um, that was a difficult thing to transition away from. But Plasma Bears on Loom Network, we wanted to demonstrate that you could own the bears on Ethereum. So I wrote uh, some contracts and some software to let people take your bears from the Loom Network and go over to Ethereum. And that's why we have, I think, 12,000 bear or 1,200 bears. Yeah, about 1,200, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 1,200 bears. Um, those are the only ones who survived. Um, and nobody, like, NFTs were not a thing to make money from unless you were an artist trying to sell your art. And even that was extremely difficult to do. The prospect of bringing an NFT over from a side chain, like a free-to-play game that anybody could get any of the parts, like there was, you know, it was completely free-to-play. The economics were not really there uh, to make money, so it didn't make sense for anybody to want to pay the, the gas fee to mint them over on Ethereum and have them over there. So that's how you just wound up with 1,200 bears. And that was it. And we shut the game down after the Loom network bellied up, basically. And we just completely shut everything down right before we redeployed Neon District in early 2021. And then, you know, nine months later, people discover the ex-copy bears and there's a huge rush on the bears. Now all of a sudden the bears that were worth, you couldn't even sell it for, you know, <laughs> Yes. Uh, a thousandth of an ETH now. Yeah, yeah, completely I saw, changed I think uh, Logan Paul or someone like this bought one of them for 23 ETH uh, six months, uh, you know, sometime in 2021. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> I saw someone tweeting about it saying that they instantly regretted selling it to him. I don't know exactly why, but uh, interesting story. I also read that Marguerite, the only uh, bear that she transferred was the one that she gave to OpenSea CTO Alex Atala. And that she didn't actually manage to transfer them uh, before the Loom Network shut down. It's kind of sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she only had a few bears. I I have the first bear that was transferred over, the first whole bear, but that's because I was testing everything. So I still have that. I'm keeping it. I only transferred one other bear over, and that was it. Um, so you know, we 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 got to the benefit of it from the secondary sales because I had the 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 foresight to put a two percent, I believe fee on the secondary oh, sales. Great. And I did that like three or four years, like whenever we, we went over to Ethereum, I set that. And when the bears started taking off, uh, Marguerite like offhand asked me like, are we getting the secondary sales on this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. And it, it actually, it was, a, it was a great thing because it, it helped us a lot with our raise uh, that we completed at the end of last year. Oh, that's awesome. That, that, that was used as sort of uh, argument in favor of the raise uh, valuation that, that you were getting royalties off prior work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it was a great thing because it helped our, our company grow a bit. We were able to start hiring faster, um, and that really helped a lot, too. Well, thank you, Logan Paul. That's great. And thank you, Xcopy, I guess. So, uh, I feel like we might have skipped over uh, a couple little things. We skipped over quite yeah, a bit. So yes. maybe take us back to, I want to know about Ledger of Zabo. Yes. Uh, Ledger of Zabo was supposed to be a pineapple. Well, it was a pineapple arcade game. I started making it you know, in early 2018. But we didn't end up releasing it until I believe summer of 2019. Yeah, I've got I've got August 2019 for the contract deploy. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So uh, what we did for Legend of Zabo is a game that I mostly made. Um, I, I had help from a lot of a lot of people on like uh, like a, an artist M Sparrow uh, made the audio files, and my wife made some of the monsters in the game. Um, and then uh, a bunch of my friends, um, a cat that programs and Crown Goal, they made, and Rhea Myers again, uh, made a bunch of the puzzles in the game as well. And uh, Crown Goal also helped with the Bitcoin Lightning Network integration. So we had something fun. Maybe, maybe before, before we get into the tech, what does it look like if you're just playing the game? If anybody is familiar with Legend of Zelda, the the original ones like the 2D um, one. yeah the, the the very first one honestly is the one that it takes inspiration from so it's like top down um uh, xy kind of yep. two dimensional exactly sort of, maybe pokemon yellow is like a reference for people who who didn't play the original zelda yep absolutely you can only see a, like a small portion of the total map at a time, like the size of the, the window, and you sort of navigate that in order to solve puzzles. Uh, I only played the first like little bit, so I didn't get into the, the serious puzzle-solving part. No, that, that's exactly what it is. It's like any old top-down uh, adventure game, basically. And does, does that use the same mechanic of the idea is that you ultimately find a private key that will unlock a treasure, like an actual cryptocurrency treasure? So um, if you play through the entire game... Uh, and you're not doing any of the puzzles, like the the actual crypto puzzles, then uh, there's no private key for that for for just playing. It's just a fun game. Okay. There's enemy enemies you can battle and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. So you had to like fight a bunch of bosses. You had to solve all of the like normal in-game puzzles to go through a dungeon and the overworld and basically discover the 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 keys that would unlock Satoshi's treasure. Um. So that was a that's a fun little game. But the the game itself, both in the overworld and the underworld, held eight different puzzles, and they all had their own private key answers, and they all had to be solved independently of each other. And the reason for eight is that it's an homage to the original Legend of Zelda, which had eight Triforce pieces that you needed in order to go into the final level. Oh, nice. There was actually a, a, a screen in the game that would ping the wallets of the different Bitcoin and Ethereum wallets, and it would light up those little Triforce pieces, just like the original Legend of Zelda did, um, as they were being solved. So if a wallet was emptied, that, that region would light up. So people could actually see how many were solved in real time. Wow. Uh, which was a nice, fun little thing, yeah. So uh, there were eight different puzzles in there, ranging from various levels of difficulty. I believe it was Zayat who solved the last few hardest puzzles. Um, but the entire game is solved now. It was a lot of fun to make. And we didn't talk about the, the lightning network aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, so the, the where the smart contracts come in, besides you know having uh, private key puzzles um, for, for like actual... I think there was a smart contract puzzle too. I think Ray Myers made a smart contract puzzle as well. There was the NFTs uh, in the game. You had to pay for an NFT uh, character 
So we sold the characters, and it was basically that was how you played the game, is you bought any of the default characters, and then uh, one of them was Doge. That was the most popular one by far. <laughs> and we also had NFT power-ups that you could buy. So like if you wanted to double your the strength of your defense, you could buy that power-up. If you wanted unlimited money, you could buy that one. And then uh, there was one more. I can't remember what it was. But we had, you know, we had power-ups and stuff like that. And to bring the Lightning Network into this, you could buy any of them using the Lightning Network. And we had effectively basically a monitor. We, we were listening for the Lightning Network transactions, and it would include additional data about which wallet needed to receive the NFT. So people could pay using Lightning Network Bitcoin and receive an Ethereum NFT in their Ethereum wallet. So essentially a server a server with the private key or whatever enabled to issue the NFTs on Ethereum. That's exactly. very cool. And, and really early, what, what do we say, August 2019? I mean, maybe, I don't yep. know what's early, but early considering the state of blockchain games popularly right now, it's really cool that you were already doing cross-chain stuff back then. It was a lot of fun. Uh, that was the furthest that we got uh, with Bitcoin and Lightning Network. There's still a lot of development there. I would love to see development for like the RGB protocol. I know that there is development being made, but when you're comparing the speed of development for Ethereum and all the EVM-based chains, it's difficult to keep up. Totally. And, you know, it was actually in researching this project a little bit that I felt like something about reading about how the project functions as a game, it sort of felt like in the future, maybe it'll seem ridiculous that there was ever any kind of contention between whether you like Bitcoin or whether you like Ethereum or some other <laughs> currency. And it would be like, I don't know, fighting over image formats or something like uh, th this <laughs> game seemed to indicate to me like, no, it's if you're a really rock star developer, then it's actually possible to just like yeah, write a little bit on this chain, write a little bit on that chain, whatever makes sense for the player of the game and to make the game most fun or interesting. Yeah, there, there's a lot you can do. I mean, you can still wrap non-fungible data basically with um, with Bitcoin transactions. It's, it's expensive, it's cumbersome, it's not intuitive, and it's very, very difficult to do, you know, from a developer perspective, as opposed to launching an NFT on Ethereum, you can do very, very easily. And you've got all these third-party tools that are ready to go. Like, you know what token ownership is, you can write contracts in a pretty plain language and people can interact with them. It's two different environments, but that, that doesn't mean that you can't do certain things. You are limited in a lot of ways. For, for us, perspective-wise, like we never saw it as being Ethereum versus Bitcoin. It's, it's crypto, it's crypto as a whole. It's, you know, it's all about ownership. And, you know, from the very beginning, particularly in like 2017, 2018, I guess for Blockade 2018, the, the end goal was always like, how do we eventually get this over to Bitcoin? Oh, really? You know? hmm. I mean, that's, that's not the goal anymore because Ethereum has grown so much that it is kind of the, the final state. Um, you don't need to go much further than that. But even in 2018, Ethereum was still like, is it going to stick around? Because, you know, uh, most of us are still thinking back to like the DAO hack and the lack of any real developed use cases on Ethereum at that point in time. So you're not sure it's going to stick around. Totally different situation now. But, you know, the, the end goal was always how do you make something persistent that lasts and ultimately lets the unbanked and people who don't necessarily have funds be able to do something to earn their first crypto. That was always the objective from day one. Mm, I guess the puzzling even was like that. It was. And the, the natural progression from going from puzzles where you have like a single winner of a, of a large pot to trying to make it so everybody can be a winner with their time and their effort, that is the progression that we naturally took. What blockchains have you written code for? They're all EVM-based, with the exception of 
just tinkering with Lightning Network, which Crown Gold did a lot of the work for. It's, you know, Ethereum, Polygon, Loom Network. I think that might be it. I know, I, I, of course, you're like dipping into assembly uh, in the solidity I read for cyber brokers uh, here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever used any other languages aside from solidity for EVM programming? Um, the only other one I'm aware of is Viper, but maybe that's like a side of my age. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there's Yule also. You can write, I guess, can you write that directly or is that not, uh, I, I've never done it, so I don't know. No, I'm, I'm just familiar with solidity and a little bit of the assembly. Um, that's it. Hmm. Very interesting. So, okay, let's get back on track here. So uh, one other one that I didn't want to miss out on is Die Kitty Die, uh, because we were talking a little bit about wrapping tokens from Polygon onto Ethereum in the Plasma Bears case, uh, and also this kind of interchain uh, connection in Ledger of Zabo. Die Kitty Die, Hackathon Project, February 2020. What was that all about? That was a really fun project with um, some friends in the gaming space, notably uh, Michael Arnold, who's doing a bunch of different stuff right now. I'm actually spinning up his own game company at the moment. So for the hackathons that I, I've been a part of, I've, I've been a part of two, I believe, where I actually produced something. Uh, the first being the Tokens of Infection, which I'll do a real brief overview on in a second. But Die Kitty Die was after that. And we were the only team, I believe, both of those different conferences, East Boston in 2019 and East Denver in 2020. I think we were the only teams that did anything with NFTs. And if that's not true, definitely the only team that did anything with like blockchain gaming and NFTs because everybody was focused on DeFi, mm. 100% DeFi and wallets. And that was that was the majority focus for everything or, you know, exploring and re-exploring different use cases for supply chain or medical records or uh, things that we have yet to see really take hold. But with Die Kitty Die, that was a really fun one. Uh, the reason it's called Die Kitty Die is not because we hate cats, we love cats. So CryptoKitties has um, a community-based project, I believe it's community-based, that lets you take any CryptoKitty and convert it uh, one-to-one with a fungible token called a wrapped CryptoKitty. Right. So it made it really easy for people to build a pool full of CryptoKitties and get those tokens back. And then you can trade effectively the, the cats in large quantities using just the fungible token. So this is primarily for floor floor kitties, I guess. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily want to put a rare one in there. So this is it's all floor cats, you know, basically above the about the approximate value. And again, this is a period of time when when nothing was really being sold. Right. Um, you know, you had very very little transaction volume for NFTs. Um, I think I was like the majority transaction volume for CryptoKitties one month. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, what we did for Die Kitty Die is we took the DAI token, the stablecoin DAI, and we let people, okay, maybe, hope, hopefully when people hear about this, they'll Google it or, or go on Twitter because there's a video attached to it that shows how it all works. But basically it's a raid game. It's like a battle or a boss battle game where everybody at the same time is fighting the same boss. And you have to have a crypto kitty and you literally chuck your cat at the boss. And there's computations done in the contract to determine how much damage that you do to the boss. If you don't defeat the boss, then the boss defeats your cat. And it turns it into a wrapped crypto kitty and stores it inside of the contract. And you can you can pay with die to add power ups and stuff like that. So it was a pretty beefy contract and it did a lot of stuff. So basically you're 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 putting your kitty up at, you know at risk by fighting the the boss battle with the uh, yep. with the kitty and if you lose you lose the kitty. 
Yep, exactly. But if you won, if you beat the boss with your cat, because the, the boss had a health bar and it would go down with each cat that you chucked at it. So eventually somebody would throw a cat at it and they would beat the boss and they would get a big prize of wrapped crypto kitties and, and whatever die was in the pool. Interesting. It's like almost uh, fr from today's perspective, it's like some kind of game on top of NFTX almost. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, um, I don't know if there was any other tokenization of NFTs at the time. Uh, Wrapped CryptoKitties is, to my knowledge, the only thing that existed. So we wanted to gamify that and make a game that was completely on-chain. Earlier than that, we had Tokens of Infection, which was another completely on-chain game that was in 2019. That was shortly after Ledger of Zabo. And that one was, we messed around with the transfer function. So if you had, um, basically we uh, airdropped or spammed everybody at this conference, uh, humans and zombies. And if you had a human and somebody sent you a zombie, it would turn all of your humans into zombies in your wallet. So all of this, basically it was a game you played on OpenSea. And when you went to transfer it, it would not leave your wallet. You could only duplicate it. Okay. So it was a virus. The intention of the game was a virus and a very fun one. Awesome. So everybody, everybody, uh, once you got any of those, were stuck with either a human or zombies or multiples of them. And it was, I believe we had the distinction of being the first project that people wanted hidden on OpenSea. <laughs> <laughs> the first NFT shitcoin. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was the first time people like didn't want that. Interesting. So we, they, they didn't have the hidden function yet. So they just put the those tokens at the end of people's collections. And I guess that, that reminds me of another fun thing. In t earlier in the year, in 20, like March 2019, we were not the very first team to do an airdrop. I think that honor might go to Jay Tobcat, who some people might be familiar with for, for his cool cat profile picture and his, his rapid solving of many, many puzzles out in the space. He's a bit notorious at the moment. Hmm. I believe he has the honor of having done the very first airdrop on Ethereum when it came to airdropping NFTs specifically. Uh, and he used Engine for that because uh, we were doing our Neon District founder sale and he was trying to, we had a ranking system where the more people that you referred to the founder sale who signed up, you got points and that would push you up the ranking and you could get a better founder's key having done that. Okay. So he airdropped NFTs to everybody to advertise that. <laughs> and then I think, I don't remember if he inspired us doing an airdrop to advertise it. He probably did because the next week, we airdropped a puzzle to everybody, and the puzzle was these red, blue, and green keys, and it was a smart contract puzzle. So th there's another smart contract that I wrote, and the um, we did not, what do you call it, like on Etherscan, we didn't verify the contract. Okay. So people at the time didn't really have a way of deducing what the original text was for the contract. You had to actually read the assembly, basically, and try to figure it out. So we had people um, who, from that puzzle, trying to figure out how we hid the private key and the prize, we had them learning how to read and understand assembly language and solidity, and they're now doing quite incredible things. So nice little way to kick that off, but that was like the, one of the first really wide NFT airdrops. That's crazy. And then, and the same uh, sort of goal as the original puzzling that brought you in, bringing in other people mm -hmm. through games that yep. get them to look into more technical matters in order to solve the puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. It was a fun, it was a really easy puzzle to solve, actually. I think maybe, again, that's in hindsight or having known what the answer <laughs> was, but, but basically the puzzle had a message in the image that people got and you had to decode that and then you had to transmit that message on chain. 
uh, to the smart contract. So people knew there was a function there you had to call. But what they didn't realize was in order to do it, you had to collaborate with other people because everybody just got one airdrop. Uh, you needed to have one of each color of key huh. in your wallet in order to submit the transaction and win the prize. Almost like a gaming uh, DAO, maybe not even by name, but we, we forcing force coordination. people to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So is it, this is uh, around the time of the Neon District Founder Key contract deploy, March 28th, 2019. Does that sound mm -hmm. about right? Yep. So uh, if you're curious, uh, the price of Ether at the time was $138. I, I, was, <laughs> I was wondering about airdropping NFTs on mainnet. I, I don't know that it happens a little bit, but not very widely anymore, I don't think. No, so it doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. We, we've done a few NFT airdrops. We did those. We did an NFT airdrop with 1155s. That was a lot cheaper. Did that in 2020 uh, for a partner of ours. And then in May of 2020, oh, oh, here's another fun thing. So in the founder sale, we had the original Neon District assets. They were shells. They were things you could apply to the armor that you had in the game okay. to basically level them up and give them a new aesthetic. So I had to deploy like 5,000 special shells for the original NFT MYC, I believe it was. No, no, it was for Consensus 2019. But those tokens are now still being given out at NFT MYC. Wow. Because uh, I think they still have a whole bunch of them. So like when you pick your prizes or, or your, your swag bag, you can still get, I think, some of those really old shells that are just sitting in the wallet. Mm. But I, I made this fun thing. So we were doing Techstars for Blockade Games. And Techstars is an incubator, basically an accelerator that invests in companies at a certain percentage. And they, they basically ramp you up into all the areas of the business and raising money that first-time founders don't know. So uh, we did the founder sales through that program. And uh, at the end of the program is a pitch night where every team pitches their project to a whole bunch of VCs. And the idea is to get some funding and backing and, and start building momentum for your company. So one of the ways we advertised or, or wanted to show off the technology of the NFTs is I made an Android app on my phone that would let me scan people's Ethereum addresses like a QR code. And then I could airdrop them one of those shells. Oh, cool. So that was, a, that was a really fun thing. Those were early days again. All the code was was terrible, but it worked. I guess we're still not we're still not there in terms of uh, popular applications of this stuff. I don't know how many people are. It happens now and then, but for gaming, scanning QRs, I don't know. Do you do you see it in in what you're in Neon District of today and and stuff like this? Uh, do we see people doing QR codes? Like people, like like people distributing NFTs, you know, popularly in in social spaces or, or things like that. You're already doing things that still not fully adopted, really. Yeah, I don't know if they are. We actually, we did that with plasma bears now that I think about it. So we had this claim process where you could you could basically, so you could trade the bears very easily with other people. You could just send them a bear or a bear part. But there was also a claim thing where you could put one of your bears or the parts up for a claim and it gave like a, a unique identifier, like a string. And people uh, immediately started taking those strings and putting them into a QR code generator, and they had like a little Plasma Bears logo on it, and then they would make puzzles or they would just share it on social media. Oh, great. And whoever got to it first, scanned it, would, would be able to claim the, the bear or the part. So it was a really fun and addictive uh, sharing mechanic because it was very low cost for everybody involved, but it was still very exciting because people are now collecting bear parts that they didn't have before. So... Uh, it's a very addictive mechanic. I think everyone should be exploring uh, that sort of thing because that sort of sharing mechanic, it's viral uh, by nature.
So as we get into the more technical stuff, this is maybe a good place to ask. Um, When you were transferring NFTs, for example, in the Plasma Bears uh, from Loom to Mainnet, as you've thought about this over the years, do you traditionally burn the one on the source network and create it anew on the, I don't know, Ethereum in this case, or are you putting it in a vault on the other network? We we do it in a contract vault. So um, the reason for that was the provenance of the NFT. We did not want to burn it and then recreate from the same ID. For both Neon District and Plasma Bears IDs, they're deterministic. They're not random and they're not assigned uh, chronologically, but they're rather they were constructed by BitPack data okay. that gave information about what those assets were. Like, for example, for the Plasma Bears, the, the ID packed the part or if it was a bear, it would pack that and then it would have, you know, an incremented ID alongside of that. Uh, for Neon District, same thing, but it's much, there's multiple pieces of information in that, that, that also includes like the chain that it originated from. So we had a whole bunch of assets that were originated from Loom. They had that identifier. Then we had to remit on Matic. They have that identifier instead, as well as whether something is a character or a piece of armor, which slot does it belong to. You know, we, we bit packed a lot of information in that. So essentially, you, you can save some storage by having the token ID contain identifying information mm-hmm. that allows you to, to, to store the information in the ID itself, I guess. Yep, exactly. It also made it very easy to uh, like avoid doing lookups because uh, you would just break down the, uh, the different regions of the identifier. So we did not want to burn any of those. Like, I, I don't know if it's a completely valid method to, to burn and mint elsewhere. I don't know if I like that idea. I don't know. It, it's come up recently in thinking about, because uh, you have so much more experience with this. It, recently, it's come up with the OpenSea shared storefront contract and artists wanting to uh, upgrade their one-of-ones or whatever collections they've created on that contract. And there seem to be two camps. Some people think vaulting is the superior choice for provenance reasoning, and other people would rather just the original disappear. I'm not sure. I'm a little bit partial to burning it if it's on the same network. You do sort of lose the provenance. Maybe there's some way to, in, with some off-chain augmentation, write the provenance to IPFS or something and store it alongside the token. I don't know what, but it seems to me like if the if you in this case where the original NFT has some like technical problems, like it's a closed source contract of sort of questionable quality or unknown quality then maybe like having the new asset is, is it really superior if ultimately its existence depends? It's almost like a symbolic placeholder for the OpenSea NFT in that example, uh, which maybe is something that you're trying to get away from. I could see that as a reason to, to prefer burning potentially. Yeah, it really depends on your use case and your intent. The thing is, I like provenance. I like having that history. You save a little bit of storage, I guess, in burning an asset, but there's still the entire history that you want to follow, and you break the chain of events, sort of, mm. when you when you go ahead and you burn. I, I think, functionally speaking, it really doesn't matter. It's what do you want to do symbolically at that point in time that really matters. Right, right. I guess, it, I guess it also depends if you're able to unwrap them or not. Yeah, that, that's true. In the case of Loom, you can't, you can't anymore. <laughs> but yeah. No, not not anymore. Um, so we had the vaulting. I mean, when, when you transfer a token to a new network, it, it obviously does not exist on the new network uh, for the first time that it goes over. So you have to do the minting process. But then from there, you can vault it. Right. If, if there's any way, if there's any way at all that you can extract the original NFT after it has been vaulted, then that's obviously a terrible, terrible use case, and you should just burn it um, because you you need a certainty. If the vault is not one way and permanent, then 
it's not doing its job. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So I guess a good time as any to talk about Fate, uh, the Fate project, which is spelled F473, uh, this Christie's auction project. And I noticed again with this one, it seems like uh, you tend to work with friends, uh, not not usually uh, working on your own exclusively on the project. Yeah, almost everything I've done, I think everything I've done, I've worked <laughs> with people who are good friends, uh, close to me, everybody who has talents in different areas. Fate was a project that Marguerite wanted to do for a Christie's auction. Uh, she was invited to auction one of her pieces at Christie's, and she wanted to create something entirely new. Uh, so she pitched to a very large team, including myself and Diego, basically everybody we know, the idea of making a game that you could play on Polygon, uh, like really demonstrating the capabilities of an on-chain game while updating the metadata and reflecting the game in real time on Ethereum. So the token itself, this was, I think, one of the very first tokens that uh, you could render website data from on Ethereum. Uh, and this was something that Divardump, uh, Simon, who's the creator of Beyond NFT, was championing was the idea of your metadata could point to a website that could then be stored in an iframe um, and, and presented pretty much anywhere. So then it's called an interactive NFT. And instead of just being a video file or you know a GLTF, which was the most advanced I think you could get in terms of interacting with something, just moving a 3D figurine around, instead of having an image, it could be whatever it is you wanted it to be. Whatever you can fit into a website is where you could make your NFT be. For time frame, uh, this is like a, uh, the tweets I saw in the Christie's auction was June 2021. Uh, so I guess you were working on it for several months before that. Yes, I think we started working on it in April of 2021, but we were talking about it before that. We spent about two months on it. Well, about a month and a half, two months on it. Um, but it was a, it was a full-time project because it was extremely involved. And contract-wise, it's one of, I think, it was kind of like my turning point in writing contracts and realizing where things can really go on chain. Like when we talk about cyber brokers, you're going to hear that I had already made the distinction that the cyber brokers, like we had decided they were going to be on chain and we mm. had done that a year prior. Uh, but the fate contract let us test the boundaries of what kind of game logic you could have in a contract as it developed over time. So the way Fate worked was you had the single Ethereum token, which represented the entire game, which was an IPFS web page. Well, a web page hosted on IPFS. And the way the game works, is kind of like a tic-tac-toe grid. It's a three by three. And you have different images and backgrounds that are animated and they're fading in and out in real time. They're like paintings, right? Yes, they're, they're very painterly. Uh, Diego did the, the characters and... They were all based on people we know. We basically everybody, including myself, my wife. We have we have a picture in there as well. Okay. Because uh, there were there were uh, single people. There were people content with themselves. There were people who were longing and they were uh, longing for somebody else. Like there were pairs that you could find, and then there were couples as well. So you had three different types of characters that would show up in this, and they would show up periodically. So there were there were twelve time segments in one epoch, basically. So you had nine stages of that with the different levels. And because it was a three by three grid, starting from level one and counting all the way up to nine, you started with a full page of, of different backgrounds. And the backgrounds were made by Hello Cat Food, by the way, mm -hmm. um, who worked with us, I believe, on Plasma Bears as well. And then the characters would fade in and out. 
and players would play the game. You'd have about two, like a minute or two to pick a character and claim them. You could do that for the solo characters. A character and a background would fade away and it would reveal a piece of what was behind it. So Marguerite, uh, this entire time, had designed the game. She had also painted um, the, the first of uh, in years that she had done that. So it was um, it's a cityscape. It's like you're standing in Times Square, basically, and you're looking out, you're seeing all the lights and the excitement. It's not actually Times Square. It's a representation of that experience, just like the whole puzzle is meant to be an experience. So can, can you explain the hearts, the hearts element? Because I think that's, I actually experienced that. I, I claimed a heart airdrop on Polygon, but I, I actually never realized it was for a game. So how, does, how did the two connect? So the, the hearts you had to collect in order to get couples, I believe. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on this mechanic. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it ended, but the hearts were involved in order to end the game. Yeah, at the, the, the final level, there's uh, people need to sort of spend their hearts or contribute their hearts in order to sort of finish the game. But I think even prior to mm-hmm. that, there's an element of pairs of people with hearts, uh, like two different mm-hmm. wallet addresses that each hold hearts can somehow accelerate the experience through the game, which is represented by this one IPFS uh, hosted NFT uh, token URI. Exactly. Um, So the hearts, they come in in two or three different ways. I think, yeah, you could also spend a heart to change the the colors of the lights on the background behind ah, okay. um, all the people. So there were there were a lot of fun small mechanics you could do with the hearts. It's interesting because y- you can see like hearts are being used in this um, at their 1155s, but they can feel a little bit like ERC twenties in the game experience mm-hmm. piece. Exactly. Yeah, and it it was it was meant to to feel that way. So the the contracts like all of the game mechanics that I'm describing here, every piece of logic was completely on chain. So all of this is on Polygon. It was all played in real time. It was an MMO, basically. I mean, you had everybody playing the exact same game at the same time. So it was collaborative. You had to collect the couples. You had to, well, you know, it was a collectors game as well. You wanted as many of the, the single and the pairs and the couples as possible. You wanted to collect the hearts so you could beat the game. And then if somebody lit up a background, for example, like they lit one region up to change all the lights to a certain color. Everybody saw that in real time. So it was a it was a very social experiment. People talked about it a lot on Twitter and Discord, and we got a mad rush of people coming in, playing the game for a few days until they they solved it. And there were a few um, hidden secrets. If you if you lit up the background, the painting with certain patterns, you could restart the game. So there were fun little things hidden in there as well. Very cool. I guess as uh, good as time as any to uh, to jump to cyber brokers. I think uh, the listeners will be upset if we don't spend a good, <laughs> a good chunk of time talking Quite about a bit of time there. the hot new contract, hot new collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so launched March 2022. I've looked at the contract. Uh, do you ever use that dot uh, swapping out the dot io on Etherscan for dot uh, dot net? You ever try that? I haven't tried that. It's cool. It, it pops open a VS code with all of the uh, contracts if it's a verified contract. Oh, that's cool. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so I, I was poking around uh, cyber brokers today, prepping for this, taking a look, and I found a bunch of different contracts. So I found cyber brokers, cyber brokers metadata, and then a different version that's cyber brokers wrapper and cyber brokers <clears throat> metadata wrapper. We got contract data storage, SVG parser, and then sort of less interesting, but uh, the some utilities and uh, Open Zeppelin <clears throat> ERC seven twenty one seven twenty one burnable ownable. So I think the the 
I, the best thing we could do is start off by talking a little bit about the contract architecture. And then after that, maybe we could run through what it's like when OpenSea or uh, a user or whatever calls uh, the token URI function and how the SVGs are reconstructed. So maybe first a high level, like what are all these contracts about? Mm -hmm. uh, the the contracts were designed, well, let's see, the project started in 2020. I think anybody who wants to learn about cyberworkers should definitely go and check out the Zemo Red episode that uh, Josie, Chris, and I did. That goes into all of the history and wow, a lot I, of the, the I didn't know philosophy. Was 20, uh, 2020, you said? Yes. Yeah. Wow, uh, wow, wow. It was almost two years in production. There was, you know, 2020 was a rough time for all of us. You know, that, that was when, um, you know, COVID hit. People were not traveling anymore. It also meant a lot of uh, venture capitalists were backing out of all of their deals, yeah. and Blockade Games was was very much affected by that. So there was a period of time when um, there was a, we had a skeleton crew, basically, um, and we were just building games. The things I haven't talked about in this podcast because it's too much to cover, <laughs> but there was uh, we were trying to find ways to sustain ourselves because we were already like you know bootstrapping uh, the company, and then then COVID hit, and then that made things harder. So uh, we were looking at ways of finding contracts to to keep us going. And it was in this period of time that, that Josie had reached out and pitched the idea of cyberworkers to me. Uh, of she wanted to do a 10,001 collection, and she wanted to do it so that people could have a chance to own her work because she was still doing things in, in very small. She still does, you know, outside of cyberworkers, she has very small collections. So she wanted to make sure that everybody who wanted one could could afford one and uh, be a part of her collector base. So this was in May 2020. She showed me some of the earliest prototypes in, in summer of 2020. I looped in Rhea Myers immediately. So originally the team was myself, Rhea Myers, and Josie. Rhea uh, went on to uh, land a very nice job at Dapper Labs, where she currently works, and um, she needed to leave the project. It was by that time that we had already decided and worked through all the logistics of, yes, we're going to put it on chain. This is what it means. And then it was from there that I went on and started working on the contract parser for packing the SVGs and everything. So the very first draft of that SVG parser contract, that contract is probably the one that changed the least. Uh, but that was done in November 2020. And, you know, when you're thinking about the lifetime of NFTs, like when PFP projects, you know, I'm not too fond of calling Cyberbrokers a PFP project because it wasn't intended that way, mm. but here we are. So 2020, this is before Uniswap v3 forces everyone to do Base64, forces OpenSea or encourages OpenSea to mm -hmm. interpret Base64 encoded SVG, I guess, right? Yeah, it's even before like Hashmask. It's before Hashmask and, and Board Apes and, and all of that. So the notion of doing 10,000 wasn't homage to CryptoPunks. Like it was, mm -hmm. that was the intention. It wasn't like that's what everybody is doing. It was the number was set because of CryptoPunks. So I guess that there was already Avastars doing something like a PFP pro. I mean, I guess Avastars was overtly yes. intended to be PFP and on-chain SVG, but I guess the way that they managed to make it work is with like an off-chain rendering rendering server to make OpenSea work properly, um, which Cyberbrokers has available but doesn't use exclusively. Yeah, and, and that has to do with the fact that it is a um, it's extremely compressed data. And decompressing that takes multiple calls. So we can't just pack that right into the token URI. And I know some people were saying that it's not fully on chain without that. You know what? When we can actually, there's one small modification that can be made 
to the metadata basically to we have to look back at fate for this one. Okay. The the concept of being able to use a website as your like iframe content for your metadata. If you can pack that into base64 encoding and keep it completely on chain and basically provide the iframe content directly from the smart contract, you can basically have cyber brokers be 100% on chain, including the token URI. So there are some security concerns about that. Uh, so OpenSea has not enabled it yet. But, you know, if, if that ever comes to be, then it will open the door for a lot of really cool experimentation with NFTs where you can basically create your websites 100% on Ethereum. Okay, wait, so, so take me through what, what specifically does OpenSea need to enable? So you can store and render SVG contact or um, data directly from the token URI. You use the image metadata uh, key, I believe, and that can have uh, a base64 encoded information about what to display. So you can right now uh, display SVG data directly from on-chain. If they enable the same thing where instead of putting an SVG in there, you're putting an HTML file, basically constructing that from on-chain, that's what they need to enable. Mm -hmm. If if that is enabled, then you don't need to depend on IPFS anymore, that sort of content. So turning turning Ethereum into a web server, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's already <laughs> a massive API. Uh, you can go just a little bit further. I mean, there's nothing technically stopping anyone from doing it. It's just who's supporting it, right? So part of the methodology and the intent and why all of the smart contracts for cyber brokers are broken up in so many different contracts that can be switched out and updated is because I expect in the future we'll be able to do that sort of thing. And I want to be ready for that. Yeah, that's why we have like the metadata contract and metadata wrapper contract. And that's, you know, all a part of it because those can be upgraded uh, without having to redeploy all of the underlying data uh, that's attached to it because that was quite expensive. <laughs> so you don't want to do that again. So the, the, so, okay. So the data is separate from the interpretation of the data, rendering it as mm -hmm. SVG, which is the, I lost the thing here, the metadata, cyber brokers metadata and cyber brokers metadata wrapper. So maybe, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit. There's also SVG parser uh, that you talked about before. So yeah, how do all these pieces fit together? Mm -hmm. So the initial first draft of the contracts, we stored, I guess I stored, the SVG data in a compressed format directly as contract data, like individual variables uh, within a contract stored with a mapping, which is extremely expensive to do. It's, it's unconscionable how much that would actually cost to do. So, <laughs> Some people were coming up with estimates saying it was going to be anywhere from like 500 to 2,000 ETH oh for us God. to put it on chain. If we had done the data route, no question, it would have been thousands of ETH. So, so this is taking like, say, a trait, let's say a trait in the collection is, I don't know, a crown or something. And then that the SVG of that, storing it as a string. Basically, yes. Or storing it as a, yep. basic, as a hex value or something or as you Yeah, you store it as bytes. Okay, uh, okay. Basically, yeah. So instead of doing that, what the contract data storage does, and this was the technique that I don't know who came up with it, but I found out about it from uh, Nick Mudge, who works on the Avogadro team, uh, who's a, an absolutely fantastic smart contract engineer, does craziest stuff. Middle, middle name Diamond, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he made the he made the Diamond protocol Diamond or not, the uh, methodology, which is really cool. Um, I've never got to use it, but I studied that as well. I think it's really interesting. The the concept that I did leverage from Avogadro was the ability to store 
data directly as a contract that cannot actually do anything because the data doesn't produce any usable function signatures or any usable code. It's just data. But what you do is you deploy it on chain with a with a header that tells you that basically treats it as if it is a contract. But the header breaks down how how many bytes are stored in this contract and the offsets and all of this stuff. Okay, th- this is what I wanted to know. So there's this. Uh, so this we're talking contract data storage and I think specifically the function save data where you pass it mm-hmm. a key, a page number, and a underscore b bytes. So the underscore b bytes is uh, what in this case? It's the base sixty four encoded SVG. It's not base sixty four encoded. It's so there's a part of this entire process that people haven't seen, and that is I made a JavaScript compressor. So Josie hands over the the SVGs to me in various formats. And then I run it through a JavaScript process that takes all of the SVGs, prunes the information that we don't need out of the SVG. One of the, uh, the, the most effective ways of getting the data down was realizing that the size of the SVG did not need eight decimal places mm. uh, for, for each data point. You could actually bring it down to integers, uh, with, with the exception of a few scenarios where you actually need the decimals. What the compressor did was, in most cases, it removed the decimals, but it would round it. To, to the nearest, so you basically had the fidelity of the original artwork down to about half of a pixel, mm. and it came extremely close to the, the original art, so much so that nobody has ever mentioned it. So I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, you, you mentioned <laughs> um, on, you mentioned on Twitter that um, you pruned the SVGs from fifty four point mm-hmm. one megs to twenty five point seven megs. That's a big part of it. So I was going to ask about the pruning, and that then com- compressed to thirteen point two megs for a total yep. compression vector of four x. Yep. So th- that's the big part. The pruning, like uh, trimming the the numbers and doing that intelligently, that was a big part of it. Uh, we swapped out the IDs for individual numbers. Um, so you know, you, you know, like all of these files had really long ID names. You know, you, you compress that down and you keep a log of um, which ID is which, and you can compress that down a lot. So basically, you're taking the SVG and you're removing any extraneous information that you don't need. And then that's the pruning process. And then in order to compress it, I wrote a custom compressor. So the SVG parser is the other part of it. It's the decompressor. Uh, It takes the compressed format and it reconstructs the SVG from it. So for example, instead of needing to store the entire string of what a tag name is, um, you have a lookup. And the tag name can be compressed down to, I think, like two bytes, maybe less than a byte. So uh, when you say tag names, these are like the SVG elements if you're coming from HTML. Mm -hmm, mm Yep, that's correct. So like circle could be a tag name. Rect. Polygon, polygon severian. Yeah, re- exactly. Rect is, is a, a common one. And then there's all the gradients and there's all these other different tags for, for how to define the colors and everything in an SVG. What I did was I made a lookup of all of those. Like every single tag that ever showed up in the SVGs that Josie sent me, I would have to then add that into the compressor. So I would I would update these compressors and the decompressor because uh, I had a, both a JavaScript decompressor and the on-chain decompressor. Oh, okay. The JavaScript one was, was easier for me to iterate on, so I would work on that one first until I figured it out and got it working. And then I would make all the updates to the smart contract. So if you're following along at home, we're in SVG parser right now. That's correct, yeah. So the, the contract data storage that let people store the, the data on-chain, there's one nifty bit of it that I think was my contribution to all of it, which is why I recommend people take a look at that contract and maybe use it for yourself. It's the pagination of the data. Mm-hmm. So contracts have a fixed limit of how big you can deploy a contract. It's like 
24,000 bytes or something like that. Yeah, tw- I, I see it here. 24,576 bytes. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So it's pretty small. I mean, it's not that small. Depending on what kind of data you're storing, you can you can store plenty in, in that limitation. But some of the SVGs that we're storing are massive. Um, and they require deploying like nine contracts uh, just to store one SVG. Like the skull characters, they required quite a bit. Mm. The aliens required quite a bit. The cats required a lot as well. In order to get all that working, the save data allows you to paginate the data. So you deploy multiple contracts, but when you go to read from it, you can pull the record from the key alone, and it will assemble the entire original SVG and all of the data from all of these different contracts, and it will give you the entire set of data back as one giant blob. And there are data size limitations to that, but it's way larger than 24 kilobytes. Um, I think in my tests, I got up to like, I don't remember, it must have been like 3 megs or 30 megs or something. You can fit a lot, and you can pull it all down in one call. You can obviously you can keep going from there. That was, I think, my contribution to space was ag- adding that uh, pagination aspect. That's very cool. So that's the, that's the save data function, at least in terms of the writing to the chain uh, in contract data storage, save data has this pagination element, which is very cool. And this uh, crazy thing is creating the header for the contract data is very, it's unusual if you haven't seen it. And I love this. I, I've never heard of anybody storing data as contracts that are non-functional. Uh, but I guess you're saying Nick Mudge did it previously and, and it's mm-hmm. very cool, very yep. cool technique. Yeah, I'm not sure who, who did it initially. I think I think Avastar stored uh, the data directly on chain. So I was initially using uh, them for inspiration, but then I was trying to figure out, because I, I had heard somewhere in the grapevine, I forget where it came from, but I remembered somebody mentioning that Avogadro used a different storage technique. So I looked into it and found that, and it is a lot cheaper to do, a lot cheaper. So cheap that I think if people start actually using it, it's going to just get more expensive to deploy contracts at all, <laughs> because they're just, you know, they're going to have to change the the cost of that. So, you know, everybody listening at the uh, the hour and a half mark, um, <laughs> let's, you know, be responsible with what you deploy on chain, because, you know, if, if we're not responsible, we're going to ruin it for everybody. That's it. You've made it this far. You get the alpha, but, you know, be careful. <laughs> be responsible. That's all I'm saying. You know, this stuff is permanently on chain. So don't put crypto dick bugs on chain, please don't. We don't need that. So this explains to me why I was going to ask you about using uh, EXT code hash, uh, checking that the, I think it's in which contract? It must be, it's in get layer attribute. That must be an SVG parser. I think so. Um, you're checking that the kickack of the ABI encoded attribute attribute value does not equal <clears throat> ext code hash, which is this EIP 1052 uh, technique for checking if uh, if an address is a contractor uh, EOA, right? I'm gonna have to look into this. This is the oh, okay. SVG parser. Uh, yeah, I think it's in the SVG parser. There was so much of it. <laughs> I guess it's I'm actually year. pulling it up right now. Like I I wrote most of that like over a year ago, which is really crazy to think about. That is a long time. Hold on. I'm, I, I'm, I'm quoting you the wrong contract. Hold on. Let me see here. EXT code sure. hash. But I think basically what, what it explains to me, what you just described is that I think you must be checking to see that it's in fact a contract. It is a data a contract, data storage contract. I was wondering why you were checking if, if uh, an attribute value would be uh, EOA or not. But maybe it was because you're storing SVGs that way. Yeah, that, that's very likely what it was. I'm actually running through um, the contracts now. Did you see which one it was? 
Uh, no, I didn't find it yet. Let's see. There's ext um, code copy. Yeah, just copy the data. That. Maybe it's in the other version. I'm looking at the uh, the wrapper one, but there, if you mm. check the main Cyberbrokers contract, it actually leads to this version. And and maybe you could explain this to me. I, I guess it's just because it's like a a proxy or something. But the some of the functions return like test test name or something like this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. You might be looking at the oldest version of the metadata contract. So when we deployed everything for Cyberworkers, uh, we were working nonstop. And when I say nonstop, I literally mean nonstop. We did not really sleep at all mm. um, for, for weeks ramping it up uh, because it was there was not only just like a lot to put together because it was a, it was a very large project, but the the bar of quality that we had set for ourselves meant that we wanted to do things a certain way and we weren't going to cut corners. In order to launch everything, uh, there were a few things that were just left unfinished at the time, even though I had already solved what was going to happen with them. And that was the metadata contract because we couldn't deploy it until people had minted all of the cyberburgers. If we had deployed it any earlier, then people would know, um, uh. like for example, how many hollows there were. They would know there was only one uh, source, for example. So we could not give away any information because then that would affect the the minting and the market as well. So we hid deliberately all of that information and we let we left the metadata contract in its stub state. And then I went back and filled in all of the gaps during the, the sale and after the sale. So when the metadata contract went out, that was the final updated version. I had done that during the sale effectively. Crazy. But everything else, the the SVG parser, like storing everything on chain, all of that was completely done. Like we would not have deployed anything without all of that being completely done. In fact, I was surprised nobody had found the Rinkeby smart contracts because I was deploying all this stuff in advance on Rinkeby and nobody found it and nobody figured it out. So I, I definitely know my MEV uh, NFT friends are are looking at Rinkeby. So it is interesting. I, mm-hmm. It's a good thing they didn't, I guess. Yeah, no, I know. I know that was a really popular tactic for front-running NFT launches is to look at Rinkeby and try to find the NFT contracts as they're being deployed, because typically they'd be deployed either days or hours before uh, like a mint happens. So if you found it on Rinkeby, then you would know the the function signatures that you would have to call for the mint, and that would give you an edge if it was a very popular mint. So I, I found the line I was looking at. It's in get layer attributes in cyberbrokers metadata.sol. If it's not the wrapped version, is, does that mean it's, it's an old uh, version of the, the contract? The metadata is used, um, let's see, ext. Uh, yeah, so cyberbrokers metadata.sol and then get layer attributes at the end there. You're comparing the attribute value to this address 0xc5d24, which I learned today is this uh, ext code hash thing. I, th- I think that's what it means, but maybe it's been a while since you looked at this part of the contract. I'm, I'm going right there. I, I'll tell you, I didn't sleep so much that I think I messed up my memory a little bit there. <laughs> okay, I'm taking a look at it right now. No worries. Let's see, ext... This code copy. Was it the metadata or the metadata wrapper? Uh, metadata. Cyberbrokers metadata, and then the get layer attributes. Uh, or Cyberbrokers metadata line three five six. Uh, there it is. Oh, oh. So what I'm checking right there is um, whether the value is empty. So if you actually take the kekak hash of an empty string, that should be the value that it returns. Ah, uh, okay. So this is why I was seeing it in the context of checking if a contract's code is exists or not, because it's an empty yep. string for uh, EOA. Okay. 
Yep. So not not EIP 1052, but the same guts actually as that EIP. Probably the same the same concept and idea. So you're checking to see that there is an attribute there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm, very cool. So much to learn from this contract and so many others. I, I guess maybe kind of heading towards the end of our conversation. One question I wanted to ask before we talked was how much of writing this contract was built up prior knowledge from the other contracts you'd written uh, and familiar versus how much was new. I, I think we kind of got a little bit of an answer that the pagination thing was the most novel in cyber brokers, but it sounds like it's been, I don't know, what, five, six years, something like this of, of, of experience building up here. It's about four years of experience at this point in time. That, that I would not call the pagination the most novel part. That's probably the only part that I had a contribution of in that particular logic uh, for the contract data. The SVG parser was completely custom mm. and new. Um, all of that was was built from scratch, designed specifically for cyberworkers, and it is made and intended. Uh, if anybody wants to explore compressing SVG data and doing something like that, it's intended to be built on top of. So Very I'd love cool. to see people um, kind of generalize that for, for their needs. Uh, so that's completely custom. And then the metadata construction, you know, people have done that sort of thing before, but there's a, a technique in there that I think is really fun. The broker names, every single cyber broker has a, a unique name. And to store all of that again as like strings and contract data is extremely expensive. I was able to bring that down. I think the cost was initially going to be 30 ETH or something. And I think I was able to bring it down to like two or three or something. And what I had done differently was every single name was stored in a giant blob of data um, as ASCII, just a giant concatenated ASCII blob. Mm. And that is stored using the save data function uh, from the contract data storage. So we're not only storing the SVGs that way, we're also storing all of the names. And what we do is we actually pick out the names knowing that they're all in order. Um, and display them. So we're, we're able to use the contract data method to in real time pull out a name from a region in memory without having to spend the enormous cost to to store all of those in like a mapping, for example. So that, that I think is really fun. And for anybody who wants to store a lot of metadata information should probably look into that because if, if it saves you several ETH to deploy and use that, it's pretty effective. Yeah, that's great. So do, do you have you been working with it so much that you have some kind of intuition for a piece of data, how much it might cost to store in the current climate? Um, it's, it's extremely, I'm a very napkin estimate type person. So when people were quoting the, the numbers that it was going to cost us to deploy everything, I, I had known for months, years even, uh, how much it was going to cost us because it's <laughs> part of the test that we write. You know, you, you see how much the gas is going to cost. And then knowing how much gas it takes to deploy something, you just multiply that by the, the gas price. So I had estimates from day one. And then to, to kind of wrap back, you, you asked a question about, you know, how much did prior knowledge come into this? Yeah. It all builds up on each other. Like the idea is that feed was probably the, the biggest like mental evolution for me as a smart contract engineer, because before that I had written smart contracts as if I was writing in any other language. And I think most smart contract engineers inadvertently do that. You're trying to write a contract in a, a method and a way, basically trying to do like programming light, where you're, you're trying to use as little data as possible, but you're still using data, you're still using old algorithms that you're used to. 
And to, in my opinion, to write effective Solidity code, you can't really do that, especially if you want to explore really weird logic like like game mechanics, for example, because game mechanics require a ton of code traditionally to write. Mm. If you're able to, like, if you want a random, so random numbers are going to come in with, with the merge. So I guess that's not really a thing anymore. Like in Fate, we had a random number that was, and I, you know, you say random with, with finger quotes. The, the number would change based on whatever anyone did anything in the order in which they did it, and they would just keep changing the random number. So literally every time anybody did anything, it would completely change the course of the entire game, which was a nice novel way to cheaply keep changing things up on people so they couldn't make predictions based on what they wanted to do in the game. I've seen other people use um, like the quantity of tokens in like a stablecoin uh, pair on a DEX as a source of randomness. Is there a reason that player interaction is a uh, is it cheaper? I guess because if it's it's happening within the same contract, so you don't need to make a call out. Yeah, I mean you can use all those different uh, methodologies, but you know ultimately when you build something, if there's a dependency outside of your control, outside of the automated. Outside of the contract itself and everything, that can just run ad infinitum for the rest of time. You don't want to depend on anything that can change or break. So you'll, you'll notice that there's been a shift in ideology from having something be you know, heavily uh, server-driven, where the contracts are kind of a small piece of the, the, the whole part, like with the transfer gateways in, in 2019 and the Lightning Network purchases. Like They were all very server-heavy. The smart contracts were were very light on the logic side of things, even if there were cryptographic checks in place to make sure that things weren't going awry. That being said, with Fate, we wanted to like completely put all of the dependence on chain and have zero reliance outside of it. And then with Cyberbrokers, the exact same idea, but you know, different intent and different purpose in the end. The art is meant to live forever. And in order for it to live forever, you have to store everything on chain, all of the SVGs, and you have to do it cheaply and efficiently because Ethereum is only going to keep growing. You know, it wasn't even a cost thing. The the main one of the big reasons why we wanted to put all of the SVGs on chain and why we wanted to compress them at all. Because the, the cost wasn't that expensive when we ran the first estimates in 2020, because Ethereum was a lot cheaper and nobody was using it, right? Like right. gas gas fees are like two gway. It, it was nothing. It was a joke. But the, the reason why we started doing compression from day one was the responsibility that we felt to not bloat the chain. So we wanted to get as tightly packed as mm. possible. So our footprint was as small as it could have been. That's like a Ethereum ecology or something. That's that's great. So 14, there's uh, 1,460 SVG layers. Uh, I believe you tweeted it was about 91 ETH to write it all to the chain in the end. Uh, the SVGs themselves, it was 78 ETH. It was 91 in total because we also had to deploy all the broker names and then all the information about the talents and the descriptions and all of that. So it wound up being about 91 ETH, 78 for the uh, SVGs. Do you remember what the gas price was when you deployed? The average gas price was around 25 uh, GUI. Not so bad. So it was, it was really nice. And I deployed it on a weekend overnight. I, when I first started deploying everything, my my scripts would issue all of the transactions in multiple asynchronous batches, like incrementing the nonce. And unfortunately, uh, you know, the transactions are quite large, so they fill up a block really fast. Mm. And as soon as I started deploying that, gas price went up to like 50 guay immediately. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, like, I, I backed off a little bit because it was like 15 guay, and then I went up to 50. I'm like, whoops, okay. 
So I waited a little bit, I turned off the script, and then I did it again, and it kept doing this over and over again. So I was like, well, I, I can't rush it. I just have to let it run slowly and steadily overnight. So how many contracts in total? Oh, man, well over 2,000. That's wild. You, you might be, as an individual, one of the most contract-deploying people ever. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an interesting fact, maybe. Maybe. That's quite a title. <laughs> yeah, that's, I was not expecting that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> 2000, and so 2000 over the course of uh, like one evening or a weekend. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it was like from, uh, for me, I'm Eastern uh, Standard Time. So, you know, from like dinner time Saturday until, you know, like late morning on Sunday. Wild. What an evening. I don't even know if anyone, I, no one I know mentioned it on Twitter or anything that that was happening, but pretty cool happening, frankly. Thank you. It, it was fun. A few people did notice. I actually ran into someone here at NFTLA that was monitoring the deployment of all the SVGs like in real time. So it's really cool. There were definitely some people who, who caught wind of it and just wanted to see what would happen. That's amazing. So Cyberbrokers is on chain now, really, really on chain now, <laughs> massively on chain. Um, is, uh, is, is your role in, I guess you're saying maybe if uh, some advancements are made in terms of display of NFTs, there's a possibility uh, the metadata interpretation could be swapped out so that it's uh, even more on chain for the, the markets like, uh, like OpenSea. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's a possibility. The other thing is the modularity and the fact that all the metadata is on chain and those different methods that you can call, like, for example, to get the statistics or the, the attributes of any of the brokers means that basically anybody can deploy their own contract, kind of like how we do with Die Kitty Die, where we interface with existing smart contracts and let people like have a fun little game attached to it. You can make a pretty involved game. Like if somebody wanted to combine loot and cyber workers and make a dungeon crawler with them, they could easily do so. Everything is there. Hmm, super cool. I, I, there's no plans to make any kind of particular game for cyber workers, is there? Um, there is. <laughs> Not to speak of. <laughs> I yeah, I, I probably shouldn't say really anything. Very good. Very good. Cyber workers has a lot of really really big plans. We're really excited for what is to come but we're not going to talk about it until we start dropping things. So, uh, you know, uh, to come. Keep, keep people excited. So uh, going forward, you, you know, it sounds like you're working on like lots of different projects over time, um, not to announce anything that's coming up, but uh, what are you interested in in terms of development going forward? What would you like to build on next and push on next technologically? I'm still thinking about it. The one thing that I've always wanted to tinker with is the idea. So kind of going back to Ledger of Sabo and the whole notion of being able to put an entire website on chain, uh, you can put an entire video game on chain when you have that, that one little mechanic updated. So I've been like toying around with the idea of making fully uh, generative dungeons on chain, and then people can just trade them and play them and maybe combine them and do all sorts of weird things. So that's like a little side project, but... Beyond that, like I, my whole focus right now, like I finally reached the point in my career where Blocky Games is is really kicking off. Like we've we have a fantastic development team. I am doing very little coding for Blockade now, mm. uh, which is a stark difference from being one of the only coders for years. And I'm I'm leading and growing up a team. They're they're fantastic developers and super super lucky. We have a big release for Neon District coming out pretty soon. Uh, we're, we're trying to drop a whole bunch of things all at once uh, to kind of kick that off. And then Cyberbrokers as well. 
I'm I'm involved full time in both projects. I can't imagine doing anything else. So we're we're spinning up a lot of hires and awesome. We've got a number of different projects going on in Cyberworkers. So yeah, yeah, both both are doing really really well. Super excited. I'm moving out of the the barracks of being on the ground and <laughs> and more of trying to make sure that the engine keeps turning for both both projects. Well, this is a pretty awesome release to punctuate uh, time as being like primarily a developer. How many people are you at Blockade uh, nowadays? We've got about 20, we've got like 16 to 20 people at Blockade and the, the development team is growing and Cyberworkers is, is growing pretty quickly too. Hmm, very exciting. That's extremely cool. And, and are you enjoying this transition to a management role? How do you, how do you feel about this uh, change of pace? I've been on and off a manager since before grad school uh, when I had a programming job prior to that. I have always hated management. <laughs> um, so, but it's something that thankfully I, I have had experience and run-ins with um, for, for years now. So my, like I, I have reached a point where I'm, I am a little tired of, of blocking people mm. uh, from being able to produce products because I, my time is now spent making sure that all of the engines are turning and it has grown a lot in a lot of different ways. So I am for the first time uh, not hating it. I'm, I'm actually enjoying, especially with the team that we've got at Blockade and the, the team that we're growing at Cyberworkers. Like it is, it's actually a pleasure to do that. And I, I know that I'm going to be picking and choosing uh, where I, I'm best suited to develop. So I'm, I'm not stopping development in any way, shape, or form, because that, that would not be like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely picking and choosing my battles. And I'm probably going to be picking those areas that build on, uh, like the smart contracts that we talked about and all of those ideas. Very exciting. We'll have to have you on again to talk about Neon District in more detail be, uh, when one of these upcoming launches happens. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot to talk about there, too, in terms of techniques for making truly scalable, playable games. That's an entire, entirely different conversation. Be happy to have that. And uh, thank you so much for, for having me on your show. Thanks for letting me talk your ear off for almost two hours now. No, this is great. I learned so much and I'm sure there's tons more to learn. Thanks so much for coming and having a chat, Ben. Yep. Thank you so much. All right. And talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Solidity Galaxy Brain. I put extensive links to the topics we discussed in the show notes. Links to subscribe to the podcast are available at soliditygalaxybrain.com. You can keep up with me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. Until next time.